revolt, and if we revolt, then what's going to happen? We might lose. We'll lose. lose. And what will happen if we lose? If they lose? We lose the country. We lose the country. Why would we lose the country? After all, they aren't yet slaves. This was the initiation of the policy to make them into slaves. But the goal, their goal was to get to their, their land, not anyone else's land. Then they should leave whenever they want. What would be wrong with them leaving? Who needs them? They're not slaves. Yeah, people read this verse and they forget the time sequence. If you thought you had millions of people who were slaves, you would want to lose them. But they're not slaves yet. This was the initiation of the policy to make them into slaves. So the question is, why would they want to leave the land? Number one, why would they want to leave altogether? And number two, especially if there were a war and the local powers were beaten by the Jews who played the role of the fifth column. If so, why would they leave? They'll take over. That's why the commentators say here that Pharaoh was expressing what he feared for himself and expressed it as if the others were going to do it as a way of avoiding expressing a curse on himself. Yeah, but he's really afraid of that he's going to be pushed out. He's going to be pushed out. Not that they're going to leave, but that he's going to be pushed out. Rather than give that verbal expression, he says, they'll, they'll leave. He really, really meant himself. That's what Rashi says in this verse. Okay. They afflicted us. Next page, you ready? 35. They set taskmasters over them in order to oppress them with their burdens. And they built this on Ramses, the treasure cities of Sefer Pharaoh. What was the motivation of the servitude? To break us. Not economic. It was not economic. How do I know? Because it says, it said to us, of them to oppress them with their burdens. That's why they did it. They wanted it to be oppressed, to break us, particularly to slow down the population increase. Later, later, there was an economic effect as well, but that was not the motivation for it. Yeah. If it says here they built Pithom and Ramses as treasure cities for Paro, that must have been a bit economic. So you get some people just, you know, they're building for them, they're getting something out of it. I didn't say differently from that, but the verse tells you what the motivation was. The motivation was to oppress them with their burdens. As a matter of fact, as slaves, they did build these cities. Now, Midrash here goes even further. It says something really quite shocking. That the, the Egyptians were more thorough, more careful, and more effective even than, than, than the Nazis. The Egyptians made women do men's work and men do women's work. Why? Because even if you're working for a hated, evil taskmaster, if you do work that you're good at, you take pride in it. I don't know if you've ever read the book, uh, To Vanquish the Dragon. It's a book about some Yakov girls, how they live through the, the Holocaust. It's a terrific book. It's a heroic book. And one of the girls writes, she was an expert seamstress. So she was in working, you know, sewing garments for the German army. Of course, you had to work seven days a week. She said, I was so good, during the week, I could sew extra garments, and I hid them. And on Shabbos, I would pretend to work, and I wasn't really working, and then when they would want to see my, my productivity, I would haul out one of the garments that I did during the week, and my quality was so good that no one ever asked me any questions. And you could hear in her writing that she was proud of that. So, you're trying to bake somebody. 
You try to break somebody, you don't give them an opportunity for pride. The Egyptians said men will do women's work and women will do men's work even though then they'll be bad at the work. And uh, productivity will be low. It doesn't matter. Because the purpose was not productivity. The purpose was to break. Is it also, I don't know if the measure of somebody said after they built, whatever they built, they would destroy it or it would sink so that they would be demoralized because when, you, when you're doing something, you want to have a goal. You know, having a goal, you know, keeps motivated to, and they, they would destroy it so that they would never, they never felt like they were accomplishing it. I don't know. It could be. I'm not aware of that measure. There's a famous parable. I saw it recently. I think where it goes back to that uh, God says to the person, I have a project for you. Take the saw and saw down the trees in the forest. <coughs> saw them up into lots. Sawing and sawing and sawing. Years go by. Finally, says the guy, uh, and then the trucks come and pick these, these logs up. Where do they go? So the guy says, oh, you want to where they go? I'll show you. The, the truck comes and goes to the truck and there's a roaring fire in a dump and the, the truck dumps the logs into the fire and they get burned up says God what did you do to me uh, I'm spending years sawing these logs these trees and, and it's worthless for nothing I didn't accomplish anything I'm wasting my life God said look at your biceps and triceps look at your leg muscles measure your heart's lung capacity productivity wasn't out there productivity was in here there's a totally different dimension. Anyway, it's just a Good. Um, then they impose hard labor upon us, as it says, by Avidu, Mitzrayim, Mitzrayim, Yisrael, the Korah. They subjugated with hard labor. Now look in the Hebrew, about eight lines down, the last word, Farah. They made us work with Farah. Farah means hard labor. Now, there is a source that says the following. Pei Resh Chav. First, exchange the letters according to the Atbash coding. Atbash means Aleph is associated with Tuf. Face, Shin, Gimel with Resh. In other words, it goes in from the outside. Right? So now, if you do that, Pei is six letters from the end. So it will be exchanged with a, a vote. Resh is three letters from the end. So it will be exchanged with a Gimel. Chaf is um, 12 letters from the end, so it will be exchanged with 12 letters in the beginning, which sort of crosses across the middle line, and that is Lamed. So now you have a Lamed, a Vav, and a Gimel. Now what is the numerical value of Lamed, Vav, and Gimel? Lamed is 39. 30, and Vav is 6, and, and Gimel is 3, 39. These are the 39 categories of malacha, of work, that the Jews were forced to perform in Egypt. You got me? It's an akbash coding plus a gematria. Right? Where would you find this? Where would you find such an idea? Who, what, what source of Jewish literature would be, would be the source for it? Huh? <laughs> Close. Right? Most people would associate it with Hasidic sources. They'd be right. Yeah, right. The answer is it's a Tesis. It's a Tesis in, in the Arbit Where? The last chapter of, of the Rome Sochet. Right? And you think it's a Hasidic source? You're right. Tesis is Hasidic 100%. You take it. We'll take it. It means that when you think about Shabbos where these 39 categories are forbidden, you think about the Mishkan, the tabernacle, where the 39 categories <coughs> were necessary to build the tabernacle, 
Mm-hmm. You have to know that the root of it was in what the Egyptians made us do as slave labor. Now you can mm-hmm. make a whole thing. You can make a whole thing. Of course, Baruch said, Abadaihim, they're my slaves. Right? The condition of slavery is not unnatural for Jewish people. It's a question of who you're a slave of. And the Rambam says, why do we call Shabbos Zechel Etzias Mitzrayim and remember the Exodus from Egypt? What has Shabbos got to do with the Exodus from Egypt? Okay, it's Jewish history, quiz time. On what day of the week did the Jews leave Egypt? Friday. Okay, it's either Friday or... Um, it's either Friday or Thursday, depending on whether it was 50 or 51 days from the Exodus to, to Shavuos. Shavuos was on Shabbos. So what has the Exodus got to do? What has Shabbos got to do with the Exodus? The Rambam asked this question more in the Bukhi, and the guy is perplexed, and he says, the fact that you can stop work shows that you're not a slave. You have to ask yourself, why am I not a slave? I'm not a slave because God took us out of Egypt. So the very fact that you stop Malacha, which is a better translation of the word, the very fact that you stop Malacha shows it's testimony to the fact that God took you out of Egypt. So, um, the work in Egypt becomes the root of how we serve God and the root of Shabbat. Well, the fact that the 39 Egypt, that's part of what Tashus is saying. Okay. We cried out to Hashem, the God of our fathers, and Hashem heard our cry and saw our affliction, our burden, and our oppression. Watch. We cried out to Hashem, the God of our fathers, that's the person who did run. As it says, quoting from Exodus, it happened in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, their children of Israel groaned because of the servitude and cried. Their cry because of the servitude rose up to, uh, to God. What made them cry? Servitude. Says twice. Twice in the same verse. The word verse is emphasizing it. They cried because of the servitude. Let me tell you what the Gaon Vilna says. Gaon Vilna says something extremely fundamental here. If you look throughout the book of Exodus when God says, why do Jews out? Why? Taking the Jews out. Two reasons are given. Number one, I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number two, they will serve me on the mountain and receive the Torah. No merit, no merit on their, be- on their part is ever cited as a reason for taking them out. It's not that they deserved it. They didn't earn it. It was a promise to the patriarchs and something for the future. <laughs> The fact that God promised the patriarchs does not by itself mean that they're going to get to go out. I said I promised the patriarchs, that's true, but that's not enough of an explanation. After all, according to the Midrash, 80% died. 80% died in the three days of darkness. And God so to speak, threatened, I mean, that requires its own analysis, after the golden calf, and after the, slu- after the uh, sin of the spies, to wipe them all out, and to make a new nation out of Moses. 
So the fact that God promised the patriarchs is no guarantee that these people are going to be saved. I'm putting the God's point in our terminology. The point is this. The people have to be relevant to the patriarchs. They have to represent the patriarchs. They have to be a continuation of the patriarchs. Only then will the promise of the patriarchs apply to them. Otherwise, you know, you sort of look through the at the world through the patriarch lens. Who do you see? The 80% were invisible to the patriarch lens. That's why they were lost in Egypt. Okay, so now how are you going to be relevant? You have to at least pray to God to get you out. You may not deserve it, but you have to recognize that God's running the world and ask Him. But they weren't praying to God to get out. So says the God, God with, with divine providence, caused the servitude to become so overwhelmingly difficult and bitter that the servitude forced them to cry out. Okay, they forced them, but they did cry out. And once they cried out, then that made them relevant to the promise of the patriarchs, and then the promise of the patriarchs could be the reason for taking them out. But the promise of the patriarchs in, alone is not enough of an explanation, because as I told you, people who were biological descendants of the patriarchs didn't make it. They didn't, didn't they cry out because the king of Egypt that was previous was good to the Jews, and that... Uh, I don't understand why like we're talking about all these hard labors when the first king of Egypt was was good to the Jews. How long were they in Egypt? Two hundred and ten. One day? Two hundred and ten years. One ninety was subtracted from four hundred. Isn't that enough time for there to be several kings? Good ones, bad ones, right? Conditions could change. But we only know of two, no? Why? We know of the of the first king that was good to at the time of Yosef mm-hmm. and then after that the the, uh, the one with the one we speak about all throughout the world other. I don't know why you have to assume that there's a power when Moses is born and there's a power when they leave 80 years later who says the same power Paro, by the way, is a title yes. for the king. It's not his name. You know, George Paro, <laughs> Paro Smith. It's not his name. It's a title of it, so it's, it's the king. Doesn't have to be the same person. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Or they did and other things prevented it. There was something that made them not try. Yeah, you're right to, to deal, use that. Yes, I have to say something like that. Or, or Well, okay. Since you asked it, there's a little bit of an ambiguity here, which always bothers me. If you look at the verse in, in Exodus, it does not say they cried out to Hashem. Verse in Deuteronomy says they cried out to Hashem. Verse in Exodus says they cried out, groaned, and cried. And the cry, because of their servitude, rose up to God. That sounds almost as if it was accidental. They're crying out, and their cry rose. Not that they directed the cry to God. But the verse of Deuteronomy does say that. We cried out to Hashem. So I used to say, the verse of Deuteronomy, you have four verses to encapsulate 20 chapters of the book of Exodus. Okay, you know, it's, it's, it's a very short summary. Maybe it wasn't emphasizing that particular part, uh, detail. But now, giving you a question, 
Maybe, maybe that's the way to look at it. It was a mixed bag. Some people did, and some people didn't. And what Deuteronomy is emphasizing is the fact that there were the people who did, and those were the people who were taken out. Exodus is telling the story in context. It says there was a cry. And if I take it from, from what you said, that means 80% didn't cry out to God. They cried out because of the pain of the servitude. That's the vast majority. So the, the Torah simply says there was a cry. There were some who cried out to God, but they were a minority. Right? The Torah could rely on the assumption today, of course, it's a very uh, fragile, unjustified assumption, but the Torah would rely on the assumption that the reader of Exodus would also read Deuteronomy and figure out that they were related. Not always being just that. Okay. Shem heard our cry. As it says, Shem heard their groaning, remembered, covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There you are, black and white. Now, just to rehearse something which I've told you several times, he remembered it? You mean in the interim he forgot it? What does Lynn's core mean in biblical Hebrew? No. Pay attention. It's brought back to, to his attention. Well, that sounds like it was out of his attention. Come on, you better than that. Huh? You gotta avoid remember. Remember implies that he forgot. Um, we have to avoid that implication. Well, how do you explain the word discord so it doesn't have any implication to forget? Right now, they might not deserve it, but this has taken them above and beyond where he feels compassion. Now you're trying to get in context. Give me a general definition of discord. Greatly disappointed. He compels them like God now. Nothing compels God. To recall? To make a present decision on the basis of a past fact. Inscribe that in your, on your bone. To make a present decision on the basis of a past fact. <laughs> Coming to the end of this month, I can tell. <laughs> right? Not that you forgot in between. That past fact wasn't relevant to the decisions you're making now. Now it is relevant. When's the last time that you thought about the fact that 33 and 55 is 88? Probably years and years and years, right? I wouldn't say that you forgot in the interim. You didn't forget that 33 and 55 is 88. You just had no use for it. So it sat there in your memory banks until, you know, in the wrong, not in the ramp, right? <laughs> okay. So here, it means now covenant they made with the patriarch now became the basis for the decision to take them out. He saw our affliction. This is the disruption of family life. And it says Shem saw, Shem knew something that only Hashem could see and, and know. Yes, I'm all angel. And our, now, okay, burden, I'm not sure about that translation. These are the children. As it says, all the males should be thrown into the river. Here, there's a quite uh, an important use of the, of the word amal in Hebrew connotes efforts without results. Efforts that don't pay off. <coughs> there's a famous uh, expression that you say when you finish your mistake, Practice of the Talmud and celebrate. Ono melem, hey melem. 
We strive and they strive, meaning people not involved in learning Torah. We strive and receive a reward, they strive and don't receive a reward. So the Prophet Chaim says, You are studying the Torah and he's a shoemaker. You're striving, you'll, make it, you'll receive a reward. He's a shoemaker. Won't he receive a reward? I mean, he gets paid for making shoes, right? Mm-hmm. So the Chavetz Chaim, you know, in those days, he didn't walk into the shoe store which had stock in stock, 500 pairs of shoes, to pick one you like. They measured your foot and they made your shoes to fit. What happens if they measure your shoe and then he makes the shoe and he come in and try it on and it doesn't fit? Then he doesn't get paid. Now, Omal means effort without results. Effort without results. Good. He cut the leather and, and made the hole and sewed it up. And it doesn't fit. So he worked without results and he doesn't get paid. What will be, what will be the parallel case in Torah? You're sitting and learning a thesis, beating your head against a thesis. You turn it upside down and inside out. And you chew it up and nothing helps. It just doesn't go. And you end up with a big question mark on that page. I don't get it. So, it's learning without results. Will you be rewarded for it? Yes, you will. Because in Torah, you're rewarded for the effort, not for the, for, the, for the results. What's the deep reason why you're not rewarded for the results? Because the results are a gift. You didn't make them. The results themselves are only a gift. All you have in your power is the effort. And you're rewarded for what you did, not for the gift that you got. Okay, that's Amal. That's it says the children. You go to the to the effort and the, and the trouble of of creating a pregnancy and then the child is born and the phone until the child is thrown in the river. That's Amal. Lachatz Lachatz means oppression in the literal sense of the word. It means pressing on you, pressure. And the other verse says the exact same thing. You see the pressure that they, they put on. Okay. Hashem took us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Great awe. The signs of wonders. Now, let's see how to read this. God took us out with a strong hand. What could that possibly mean? What would it mean to say that God used a strong hand? What does strength mean vis-a-vis God? We're talking about the creator of the universe, the all-powerful creator of the universe. What could it possibly mean to talk about a strong hand? Change of nature. Oh, okay. You're two steps ahead of me, but I think, let's go step by step. But that, I think, Remy Dalton is the correct answer. Because you have an unfair advantage, you're wearing a black velvet kippah, so you know you know, you know things like this. And these guys are just learning it. Um, to say that strength was used implies that there was. Huh? Okay, there was effort. Now, and to say that effort was used implies that there was. Will. What? There was will. Yes. But what else does it imply? Suppose I said it was done without strength. Whistle, done. 
was done without strength, with a weak hand, was done. Wouldn't that imply will? Wouldn't that imply direct action? So what do I add when I say that it was done with strength? What else must there be in the picture if strength was used? It was hot. Miracles? <laughs> resistance! You're all to use strength against resistance. What kind of resistance could it be against what I mean? Good, good. Step by step. Step by step. We'll get there. But don't, don't, don't abandon your logic in the face of piety. Right? Press your logic all the way, and the piety shows you you made a mistake. You say, "Okay, my logic is this far. I know I made a mistake. Something's wrong." Just don't, don't abandon your logic. You know, don't. It's not our religion. You know, there are other our religions like that, where you meditate at the sound of one hand clapping, getting a break. Our goal is not to blow our minds. Our goal is to use our minds. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we run up against a brick wall. But you don't abandon your mind. So to say that there is strength used means there is resistance. Okay, now he asks quite rightly, resistance against the creator of the universe? That's ridiculous. Okay, so then, what must you conclude? Where is the resistance located? Against the creator of the universe? Mm-hmm. Well, think, think outside the box, as my wife would say. Yourself? Yes, the resistance has to be internal. Couldn't be an external resistance to the creator of the universe, so it has to be internal. The picture has to be here of a struggle within God. Now let me enforce this for you. In Pirkei it says, Ezehu Gibor, who is mighty? Anybody know the end of it? Yes. A person who conquers his own spirit. That's what Gibor means. Gibor means a person who conquers his own spirit. No, isn't God called Gibor? Well, for those who don't know, yes, he is. <laughs> all over the place, all the time. No, and Chazal are defining this concept for us. They tell you, Gibor means he's, he conquers his own spirit. Conquering his own spirit pictures a person at war with himself. More strictly speaking, part of him is at war with another part of him. Right? If God is called Gibor, then we have to picture internal conflicts within God. Yes. How can you picture internal conflict within God? Here's how you do it. All Jewish philosophy is based on this. All we know about God is His will. We don't know anything more about God than His will and His actions. Actions now being an expression of will. And will is built on purpose. You do something for a purpose. And we know something about God's purposes. And God's purposes can come into conflict with one another. And then one purpose wins and the other purpose loses. You have the exact same model. The exact same model. So, when God sustains people who don't deserve it, and the principle of strict justice says, but they don't deserve it, they should be wiped out. As the Ramchal said in part 2, chapter 8 of the Derek Hashem, the way of God, Loving kindness, which is running the world from the top, says to justice, too bad. We're not doing justice now. I'm holding you back. We're not going to allow you to express yourself. Either to modify and weaken justice or to overlook justice altogether. Just to overwhelm justice. They know we're not doing that. And that's an internal conflict. And on the other hand, when justice asserts itself, loving kindness has to be held back because loving kindness would not allow any withholding, not any restriction, not any loss. So since these principles are set up in conflict with one another, 
there's going to be internal conflict and there's going to be struggle and there's going to be times when one overtakes the other. And here, given what I have already told you, let's see if you can finish it. What is the outstretched hand, the strong hand? What is the strong hand? And what is the resistance? And who's overcoming who? The strong hand is Mystic Mercy and we can't trust this mercy overcoming That's right, because over here the Jewish people didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve it, they had no merit, they had no accomplishments. And God saved them anyhow. And justice said, no, you can't do that. And I have quoted the Midrashim to you. The, the angel said, these serve by idols and those serve by idols. Why are you punishing these and, and uh, saving those? That was the, uh, the this expression of justice. What do you mean? There isn't a significant difference between the two groups. Why are you favoring one and destroying the other? So this is the attribute of exactly mercy, but whatever it is, on that, on that side of, of the... Of the of the fence, which is withholding justice and overcoming. Strength, I told you, some of you at least in another context, strength always refers to loving kindness. Strength always refers to loving kindness. Let God's strength be great. Rashi says it's talking about this. So, um, the picture here is literally correct. Strong means there's resistance and it's being overcome because there was a complaint that the Jews didn't deserve to be taken out of Egypt. Yeah. I, I was under the impression that all the Jews that had sinned were killed out, like in Koshet. There's a difference between those who. Oh, I'm sorry. Let, let me say it another way. You're, you're right to ask. Let, let me say it the other way. Mercy, mercy requires a justification. Mercy always requires a justification because mercy says don't do justice. Mercy is always an uphill battle. Don't do justice. The question will be, why not? It is justice, you know. Why shouldn't we do justice? You have a reason for that. You can't just say no. Right? Kindness doesn't need a reason. You have to justify being kind. But if you're going to say no to justice, you have to have a reason. Now, that means that mercy can run out. Mercy can run out. Because there has to be a reason. And the reason can come to a point where it runs out. So this is the idea here that the 80% were beyond mercy. The 20% were candidates for mercy. Nobody deserved it. Nobody. I don't know. Maybe Aaron deserved it. We might, but the, the vast majority didn't deserve it. You know what it's like? It's like um, Anyway, that's the uh, that's the idea. Yeah, isn't for something to be a conflict, a true conflict? Don't you not you can't know what the end result's going to be? I feel no. like if you know what the result's going to be, then it's not really. A conflict. You never did competitive sports, did you? What? You never did one-on-one sports, did you? I have. What? Even if you know you're going to win, it's not a conflict. Um, yes, it is. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know. <laughs> I did enough competitive sports. <coughs> I know. That even though I knew it was going to win, it's still a conflict. Of course it's a conflict. Yeah. Um, this idea of like intern conflict within Hashem, like uh, the Rahamad also in the beginning says that, you know, God is one, there's no division. So uh, we're, we're supposed to understand this just yeah, that, level. from our level, like, level. to be able to, That's right. That's to right. understand That's the process. Level. It's two different levels. But in the end, there is no actual... I don't think in the end. I mean... They're both real. They're both real. Hmm. 
there's a higher level, which is all one, and there's a lower level, which divides up. All these divides up the way we perceive it. That doesn't mean it's not real. <coughs> we spoke about this once. Um, you know, if you, if you take a glass and fill it half with water and put a knife in it, from almost every angle where you, if you look at it, at the, at the surface of the water, the knife will look down. Right? So we say, well, okay, don't make a mistake. It's not really bad. Really, it's straight. It just looks bad. Right? That way of talking misses out on an important fact. Imagine you're standing here. I'm, I'm standing here. I'm looking at the glass. And I see at the surface it goes like this. Right? Somebody's standing right next to me and he looks at the glass. He says, I don't know what you're talking about. To me, it looks perfectly straight. He has a problem. Because it really, now notice the vocabulary, it really looks bent, doesn't it? That's the way it really looks. And if he doesn't see that, then there's something wrong with his glasses, something wrong with his eyes, something wrong with his brain. He has a serious problem because it really looks bent. The the moral of the story is that there are two types of realities. There's an independent reality and there's a relational reality. They're both real. They're both real. It's just that one is the kind, one is the way the knife is if nobody's looking. And the other is the way the knife appears when you're looking. For both are real. Either one is a mistake. If you make the mistake of, of, of projecting, that's the way it looks, so that's the way it is when no one's looking, that could be a mistake. But if you focus on the way it looks, that's not a mistake. So the way God reveals himself to us is the way he really reveals himself to us. And in the context of his relationship to us, that's what he really is. Of course, above and beyond, the way he looks to us, there's another reality, which is more fundamental, right? But that doesn't mean the way he appears to us isn't real. It's the real appearance that he shows us. Okay? All right. Anyway. This is all we can describe. The appearance. We talk about internal conflict. We talk about within the appearance. Okay. Hashem brought us out of Egypt not through an angel. Not through a seraph. Not through a messenger. The Holy of us be in his glory himself as it says. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. I will slay all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, the man to beast. And upon all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment, I Hashem. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, I know angel. Let me say that literally because it might lead to a wrong implication. I am not an angel. I will say the firstborn land of Egypt, I am not the Sarah. And Paul God has said, Egypt, I will execute judgment, I am not a messenger. I am Hashem, it is I, and, is, and no other. Now I want to tell you something very surprising here. Very surprising. And then show you how sometimes the translation has to be looked at with considerable salt. The Torah says that how do you translate Pesach? Hashem Pesach al Botein. Say again, Pastor. You see the alliteration. P, passed over, Pesach. Well, um, not so easy. Not so easy. Mm-hmm. 
when God, when Moses is telling the people what's going to happen, so like this: put the blood on the doorpost and the tomb and so no one leave his house till the morning. Hashem will pass through to plague Egypt and he will see the blood on the lintel on the two Upasach Hashem al HaPesach Hashem will posach on the entrance could Al mean over? Yeah, could mean over. Could mean on. And he will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to plague. He will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to plague. Who is this destroyer? We are in a whole context. Now, didn't we just finish reading? I am not a Malach. I am not a Saraf. I am not a Shaliyah. Right? Taking that into account, we have a problem here. That's just looking for a candidate. I'm trying to make sense out of what it says over there. Right? Now, also, how can Hashem prevent the destroyer from coming into my house by passing over my entrance? How's that going to prevent the destroyer from coming in? So Rashi says the meaning here is quite different. Pasach al means he jumped from entrance to entrance. Pasach means to jump onto, not to pass over. As it says in Novi, a person who is hesitating between two ideas is like he has a foot on this stump and a foot on this stump and he jumps from stump to stump. He can't make up his mind where to stand. Right? He's jumping on both of them from one to the other. So doesn't mean passing over the houses. It means passing from house to house. The picture here is that there is a destroyer in the streets. Let's loose in the streets. Destroying. And the Lord says about I won't let him come into your houses. As he goes from street to street I'll follow him. Or I'll go with him so to speak. And when he comes to a Jewish house I'll stand on the doorway and I won't let him come in. Comes to the Egyptian house, I'll let him go in. The Ramban says that's exactly what happened here. It's exactly what happened here. But his brother did not kill the Egyptian firstborn. He was protecting the Jewish firstborn. The Mashkis, the destroyer, was protect was was destroying the the Jewish firstborn. The, the, the Egyptian firstborn. Now, what does it say here? Don't go outside. Because the destroyer is loose in the streets. And he, the says, When the Mashkis, the same word, Gemara is using the same word as in this, in this verse, when the destroyer is given permission to destroy, the destroyer doesn't distinguish between the good and the evil, between the righteous and the wicked. He doesn't distinguish. So God says, listen, the way this is going to happen is the destroyer is going to roam around. And he's going to destroy those houses that have the blood on them, those Jews that stay in those houses will be protected. How will they be protected? Because I'll see the blood and I'll stand there and I'll protect them. If a Jew's out in the street, he's lost. He's not associated with the blood in the house. 
and he'll be and he'll be killed by the destroyer. Said Ramban, because when a king, when a king travels, he travels with a retinue. Doesn't travel alone. He travels with a whole assembled company, and one of the jobs of the company is to um, demand honor for the king. The honor of the king. And here, where you had the Egyptians, so they're being struck down by this retinue. So, so now, if that's the Raman's picture, and that's in a sense Rashi's picture, and the verse really pretty clearly says it, what then is the Haggadah saying? That is, I, 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 I. I will pass the land of Egypt and die. I know angel. I will slay the children of Israel. I know Sarah. Upon all the gods of Israel, I will say, I know messengers. I am Shem and I know other. What could that possibly mean given the picture that I have just described to you? There is a logical way out. Almost everything that happens in the world happens via some kind of intermediary alone. God sends the intermediary to do it alone. God sits at the top of the causal chain, so to speak. Okay, in another sense, he's present at every link of the causal chain. I know there are distinctions here. Okay, I'm saying this in the tapes. We know that. But usually, where he manifests himself is at the top of the chain, and his will is carried out at the lowest level by an angel. What you can say, from the point of view of the Ramban and the, and the Potsuk, the way it's written, and the Rashi, is that what he means here is, I'm not going to give this over to an intermediary. I'm not going to just send an intermediary. I'm coming myself. Will I be the one who pulls the trigger? No, not necessarily. But I'll be there. I'm there personally to direct it. Not sitting on high, sending, sending messengers or intermediaries to do it. I, if you're not going to do it, you're going to do it. The action will be carried out through intermediaries. What's the importance of your being there? There are several things to say. One of them, yeah, you know, one of them is when, when Moses says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, pray for me. Moses says, when I leave the city, I'll pray for you. Why? Because the city was filled with idol worship. Moses says, I can't pray to God. And the city is still idol worship. Okay, so the idol worship is a barrier to praying to God. Is it a barrier to God? The answer is there are no barriers to God. Nothing is a barrier to God. No matter what the forces are there, he wants to be there, he can be there. So God says, listen, I know, you didn't pray to me there, and, and it was right, you shouldn't pray for me there. Right? Because under normal channels, it's not going to work that way. But when I want it to happen, I'll make it happen myself. And with I, with my holiness, as the Haggadah calls it here, Haggadah's Lord, the Holy One, blessed be He, He went and He did it. Of course, with His retinue, and this one carried out this function, that one carried out that function, but He was there personally and did it. It wasn't done through an intermediary with Him absent from the, from the event. Yeah. Uh, Passage and upon all the gods of Egypt, I'll execute judgment. Is that talking about the idols then? Like um, yes. Now, 
Yes, I don't know what happened that night unless you say, like Chazal say, they left at daybreak. Now, let's figure this out. Was it the date in which they left, the, 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 Hebrew, the Hebrew monthly date? 15th of Nisan. What's unique about the 15th of Nisan? Full moon. Full moon means that there is a time when the sun and the moon are both visible. Indeed, in the morning after the full moon, the morning, you know, that since the, the moon is falling further behind the, the sun, so you will have some minutes in which both the sun and the moon are both visible. And that's what that's what the Midrash says that uh, they went out at that moment, so no one could say, "Ha, you went out in the daytime because you were afraid of the moon god," or "Ha, you went out at night because you were afraid of the sun god." No, the sun was there, the moon was there; they were both visible. And we walked out in full sight of both of them, and nothing could stop us. Right? Maybe that's what it means, or or, some, or there's something else that I'm, I'm just not aware of. Okay, all right. Pick it up tomorrow. Thank you very much.